The Fitness Reborn podcast is a companion piece to Renaissance Fitness personal training. This podcast is to serve as educational and entertainment purposes only. It does not in any way constitute as medical advice. If you have a medical concern, please seek out your provider. What's up, Internet Fitness family? This is the Fitness Reborn podcast. I'm Sean from Renaissance Fitness Personal Training, where we put movement ahead of workouts. And my guest today is Rick Alderman, physical therapist and a clinic owner. And uh, he specializes in sports and orthopedics and pain. A lot to do with pain. Rick, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Sean. Looking forward to talking with you. Yeah, yeah. So I got pretty excited when I, uh, you know, I first reached out to you by your representative here and your background is very impressive. And like I said, before we start broadcasting, we have a lot of commonalities here and what we're interested in. So, yeah. So real excited here, too. So, well, let's start. Let's try to just start from where the, the ground, where the rubber meets the road here. So what is your specialty i know that's pretty broad but let's let's go into you start there what is specifically your specialty yeah well i'm a sports and orthopedic physical therapist have been for over 25 years but uh by necessity i ended up focusing mostly in chronic pain issues because the vast majority of my caseload seemed to be with a lot of chronic pain issues so of course i saw the acute sprain strains post rehab or post surgery surgery and all that kind of stuff but uh the 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 uh, chronic pain issues were the things that I failed at early on in my career and drove me to find different solutions than what I was taught in PT school because I was such a failure. So that's what I'm doing. Uh, failures that you didn't find answers for in PT school. So physical therapy school just wasn't really as uh, comprehensive as you needed it to be. Correct. Uh, so. You know, in PT school and in medical schools in general, we uh, are taught in a component thinking standpoint. So we're taught to identify a tissue that's damaged, isolate that, treat that tissue, and, you know, you're good to go. And that works really great for sprains, strains, post-surgical issues, and so forth. But it doesn't work well for chronic pain. You need to have a more comprehensive overview of how the body works from a system standpoint instead of a, just a component thinking standpoint. And so I've developed this approach of looking at the body from a system standpoint. And it sounds like, well, gosh, that sounds like what you should have been taught. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's not. It's, it's, it's a big departure from how we're trained as physical therapists. And this is why I believe that we have chronic pain in the world. It's because we're trained in component thinking. And like I said, that works great for a subset of types of pain. But chronic pain needs more of this systems thinking. And we just don't have that in physical therapy. Yeah, I know you just said it, it, you know, it has a lot to do with component thinking, which meant, in other words, they compartmentalize a lot of things. I suppose in sure. terms of like teaching things, that makes it much easier rather than saying, Absolutely. rather than saying, well, you know, this is much more of a global problem rather than a localized problem here, which, you know, I guess, again, from a teaching standpoint, that just makes it that much harder here. But it seems like they're just kind of shooting themselves and you guys in the foot when they send you out there unprepared for what you're going to actually run into. You're absolutely right. And so, you know, that first year of P 
being a physical therapist, I was out in a small rural community and I had all of these difficult patients and I couldn't help them. And I sunk into a deep depression thinking I'm just terrible. And uh, maybe I picked the wrong profession. And, uh, you know, I stayed there in that uh, depression for a few years until I figured out I moved to Denver here eventually. And uh, I learned that, um, gosh, it wasn't just me that was failing these people. I mean, you know, doctors, chiropractors, physical therapists, massage therapists, my, case, my schedule was filled with people in, almost immediately. I went to work at a, at a health club downtown. I was the only physical therapist that they had ever hired. And immediately my schedule filled with all of these people. Well, I mean, they're 20s to 70 year olds with health insurance, healthy, you know, robust people who like to cycle and climb and, you know, run, play sports and all that kind of stuff. They have great insurance. They had been to a plethora of, of medical professionals and they still had pain. And that's when I realized, you know, I wasn't the only one who was failing. And so that's when I realized, you know, I could either get out of the profession or try and figure this out. So that's what my last 25 years has been about. So you, what kept you in the profession? Because actually I've spoken to a lot of people who ran into the same kind of problems that you have run into, medical professionals, mm -hmm. you know, physical therapists, massage therapists, chiropractors, yeah. medical doctors. They run into this, they run into this problem and they, and a lot of times they do say, you know what, screw this. I'm out of this because this is, I'm not actually doing what I want to do here. I'm just managing things and I'm shifting things around and I'm not actually doing what I wanted to do, which is help people here. But you stayed in the game um, and you decided to kind of just uh, refashion things the way you thought they needed to be instead of just you know, uh, jumping ship all together here. So what made you want to stay? Well, I mean, I, I, I really felt, you know, I had a duty to stay, you know, mm -hmm. I had a duty to the people who were coming to me for help. And I just refused to believe that this is the best that we can do in medicine. It just didn't make sense. And so I just, and, you know, I had a family to support. Right. Well, if I if I switch gears now, uh, I'm way behind the, the, the block now. So, you know, I just kind of buckled down and I didn't work in a in a traditional physical therapy clinic. Uh, I worked at this health club and then I worked out of my home and that allowed me to have more time with patients mm -hmm. and and go down deeper rabbit holes than most clinicians are allowed to go down into. And that's when I started to see th these patterns emerge. And, uh, you know, I, I went and took training that I wanted to take rather than things that I should be taking. Mm. And that really made all the difference, in, in my opinion. All right. I'm curious. What kind of training did you take that was what you shouldn't have been focusing on? Yeah, well, the, the first training was something I should have been focusing on. So I only knew of I, I had an inherent belief that we are creating our pain. How we're using our bodies must be causing our pain. And so how we're using our bodies should be able to solve our pain, too. Mm -hmm. And I only knew of one physical therapist researcher out there who was studying movement and pain. And that was Dr. Shirley Saruman out of St. Louis University. She's a Ph.D. faculty member, wrote two textbooks and so forth. So I took all of her seminars and read her textbooks, and it transformed the biomechanics of what I of what I understood was causing pain. But there was a. a the next tier of patients comes knocking on your door. When you get good at some patients, then the harder ones start saying, right. hey, what about me? 
So <laughs> those those harder ones started coming on and they weren't responding to biomechanical solutions. It was as if they had a battery inside their bodies that was charging them to be contracted in these patterns of painful movement. And so that's so I started looking for what this battery could be. The only thing I could think of was it was our brains. And so I got a call from a, a girl who had read one of my back pain book. And, you know, she was actually had taught, was crying and was talking about committing suicide. And so I spent a, an hour with her on the phone because she was in so much pain. Nothing was working. She loved my book. She believed that it was correct, but it wasn't working for her. So I did my best to try and help her over the phone. She called me back a, a month later and she says, I found a solution. And I said, well, what was it? And she said, Hannah Somatics. She said, it's exactly what you're talking about, but from a different point of view. And so Hannah Somatics was developed by Thomas Hanna, who, mm -hmm. uh, and he, uh, he was uh, interested in uh, our brain and how our brain causes fascial contractual contraction patterns and or neurological based tension patterns. And so, you know, well, if it helped this girl who is almost suicidal, I thought, and I, of course, as a PT, you do research anisomatics. Okay, what do I, what can I find on anisomatics? Absolutely nothing I could find. I, so I just had to take the leap and I took the training. It lasted three years, twice a year for 10 days each time. And I learned this new approach to solving chronic tension patterns that were also contributing to these movement dysfunctions. And so that is, that is something that is not on many people's radars. And so when I put the biomechanics of things together with the neurologically based patterns, they fit hand in glove. In fact, they both identified the same three patterns of dysfunction causing almost all spinal pain. But they didn't know, they weren't aware of each other. Dr. Saruman discovered it from a biomechanical standpoint. Thomas Hanna discovered it from a neurological uh, reflex pattern standpoint. And then it was also reinforced, reinforced by Thomas Meyer's work with fascia. I don't know if you've heard of him. I have. He, he identified those superhighways of fascia that are running yeah. through our bodies. Uh -huh. Guess what? All three, all three researchers found the exact same three patterns of dysfunction. And when I got to Hannah Semantics and saw that his were the same as these other two, I'm just like, my head just nearly exploded. I was just like, uh -huh. I've got it. I've got the biomechanics, I've got the fascia, and now I've got the neurological. And I put it all together. Wow. And that's what I've been doing these past 25 years is distilling this down into a simpler way of helping people. Wow. So three different people here, essentially with the same goal in mind here, all working independently of each other, not knowing who each other were. Absolutely. All, all just kind of converged here. Well, yes. Converged through you, basically. Yeah. <laughs> because you knew about all three of them. You put them all together here. Right. But they, they know nothing about each other. They knew nothing of each other. As far as wow. I know, Dr. Wow. Sherman, I mean, Dr. Shirley Sarman wrote her textbooks prior to Thomas Meyer's research. Uh -huh. and, and Hannah Somatics did their research prior to Dr. Sarman's, right? And I know that, I mean, they had no knowledge of each other. And what I felt they were all three missing was more of a, a linkage as to why are, even though all of these things exist, why are they existing? So mm -hmm. it had to do something with how we're using our body that's charging up these patterns. And so I, that was my, that's been my contribution these past 20 years is trying to figure out, okay, what is it that we're doing that's causing these neurological, fascial, 
and biomechanically based patterns of dysfunction in our body. And so that's what I've put together. All right, so let's get right down to it then. So what are some of the things that we're doing that are causing these dysfunctions in our body? I mean, I think a lot of us already know because we, we've been hit over the head with it for several years, like things like sitting too much, you know, and, you know, and like, you know, punching over computers and things like that, which will reset your body and, and you know, things like that. But anything, what else more specifically are we doing that really yeah. cripples us? Well, actually, that's not correct. Okay. That's that's based on component thinking, Sean. Okay. So gotcha. it's, it's based on a lack of understanding of how we work as a system. So sitting in and of itself isn't bad for you. Okay. Cultures sit have been sitting for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, you know. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's that's one of those things that we sometimes do in medicine. If we can't solve a problem, we pick something that you can't possibly change to blame your problem on. Right. <laughs> oh, you're working in an office. Well, your problem is that you're sitting for eight hours a day. Well, I, I have to. That's my work. Uh -huh. I'm sorry. I can't help you. I mean, that's your problem. And until you stop sitting for eight hours a day, you're gonna, just going to have to deal with this pain. Well, that's not helping anyone. That's just taking the load off of you to, uh, in terms of figuring out what the problem is okay. and just putting it back on them. So. Uh, but I, I don't blame you for mentioning those things because those are all the things that have been talked about for the last 20, 30 years, right? Right. Sitting too long, posture, you know, oh, forward head syndrome, you know, upper cross syndrome, all this kind of stuff. But in terms of most back, sciatic, and lower body pain, really the, the common denominator is our gait pattern, how we're walking. Mm -hmm. Most people are walking incorrectly. And I can take you through a little test to, to show you what I'm talking about if you're interested. But basically, sure. walking is the, is the fundamental activity that we all do every day. And I have found that it, it's breaking us down because we're often doing it incorrectly. And we can talk about why we're doing it incorrectly, uh, too, if you want to. But that's, that's one of the key movement patterns for those issues. Okay. I want to know, why are we doing it incorrectly? Yeah. So, uh, so let me go through a little test with you. Can okay. you walk around on this podcast? Are you able to walk around with your headphones or no? Uh, um, maybe within reason here. Let me. Okay. We're just going to take maybe three or five steps. So right. let me, uh, uh, you, can, you can do them in a little circle around your desk if you want to. All right. All right. So Let's... folks at home, I want I, folks at home listening or watching, please do this yourself too. So Sean, first of all, what we're going to do is we're going to put your fingertips on the, on your butt muscles right here. All right. Okay. We're not, they're not at the bottom of the butt. They're not at the top of the butt. They're right in the center of the butt. Okay. And your fingertips should be dug in there. And if you pinch your both, both of your butt cheeks together, you should feel that your butt cheeks get hard. That's yep. a contraction. Okay. Now relax those completely. All right. So now I just want you to walk around three or five steps around your office because I know you're, you're tethered to your computer. But just walk around a little bit and see if you feel any of that contraction happening when you're walking. Well, with my hands on my butt. Yeah, with your hands on your butt, because that's how you're going to feel it. Okay. Yeah, I can feel it. Okay. So uh, most people who take maybe 10 or 20 steps, they'll realize that their butt is very disengaged and not really turning on at all okay. naturally when they walk. So now let's have you go up on your tippy toes, Sean, and, and take another few steps around, and you'll see, see if your butt is firing better on your tippy toes than when your heels were flat. No, it's not near as tense. Okay. 
So when you were, so that's the exact opposite of probably 99.9% of the people listening is that when they're walking naturally, their butt is not engaged. Uh, And when they are, and this is without you trying to engage it yourself, your butt should be relaxed when you're walking naturally, right? So when you walk on your tippy toes, most people will say, oh yeah, now I can feel something happening there. All right. So what is the, what is happening during normal gait pattern? that would be turning off the glutes, whereas tiptoe walking would be turning them on. You can have a seat if you want, Sean. All right, gotcha. All right, so what's going on with our normal gait pattern is most people when they walk, and folks, those of you who are listening to the podcast, uh, I'm holding up a skeleton right now. So Sean, uh, you'll put this on YouTube, so you can go go there if you wanna see what I'm talking about. But most people when they walk, their foot comes out in front of their body, and then their body passes over the foot. Mm-hmm. Well, this is what's turning off the gluteal muscles. Because when that heel hits the, str- hits the ground, the knee is locking in a straightened position. And there's no reason for the butt to turn on at this point. The butt will only turn on once your body is already over the foot. But the butt should be turning on at foot strike. Because of all the ground reaction forces that are coming up through your lower body, Mm-hmm. The butt muscle is the strongest muscle in the body. It needs to be active when you're foot striking in order to attenuate and control all of the mechanics of your lower body system. So if your foot is out in front of you and heel striking, typically it's your hamstring that's going to turn on and then your butt and your knee is locked and the butt is basically turned off at foot strike. So what tiptoe walking is doing, and you, if you want to try this out, you can feel this yourself. It's impossible for your foot to land out in front of your body when you're tiptoe walking. Right. And you'll also notice that it's almost impossible to lock your knee when you're tiptoe walking. Right. Yeah, it is. So tiptoe walking has solved the two elements that are turning off the gluteal muscles. Well, the gluteal muscles are important with controlling the tracking of the femur head in the hip socket. They're important. They're critical to controlling rotation of the thigh bone, which is half of your knee joint. They're critical to controlling orientation of the pelvis and also rotation of the pelvis and therefore the SI joint, uh, SI joints. And so also if the femur is uncontrolled and the knee is uncontrolled, then that leads into uncontrolled foot issues too. So the gluteal muscles control the spine, the lower spine, because wherever the pelvis is going or not going, the spine has to follow, right? Uh-huh. And so the gluteal muscles control the pelvis, the hip joint, the knee, and the foot. And that's why it's so critical that they turn on correctly at the right time to the right degree when you're walking. And so this is why no matter who came into my clinic with back on down to foot pain, no one left us without learning how to walk correctly. And this is how it happened. And this is why chronic pain would go away. Is because we change their gait pattern. Of course, we fix tighter, weak muscles and things like that. But no matter how many times you fix those, if you're not using your body in a way that activates or deactivates those muscles correctly, then you're just going to keep coming back with the same pain. Wow. And that's basically how it works. So people, the way people normally walk all over is just is the biggest source of their chronic issues here so we really should be walking essentially on our on our toes no No? the tiptoes is showing you how your butt should be turning on 
Okay. So, the, so the way I would teach this is, oh yeah, I feel my butt turning on now that I'm on my tippy toes. Okay, now walk five or 10 steps and then slowly lower your heels back down to your normal walking you know, height. And you'll find mm-hmm. that your butt stays turned on at foot strike now because you've just taught your brain how to keep your knee unlocked. And by taking a, a few steps up on your tippy toes like this and then lowering your heels back down, your brain now understands that, oh, yeah, now my body is over my foot at foot strike and my knee is unlocked. And so your, your brain will continue doing that until you, you know, don't think about it or you revert back to your old patterns. So usually it takes about three to five days or seven days for most people to relearn their walking pattern. That is, that is very interesting. And that... Is that, that's pretty much the uh, the summation of, of your work here from all these different sources you spoke of earlier. It all comes down to just the incorrect gait pattern. Well, that's that's a big one. That's not that's a big one, okay. but that's a big one. Okay. So that ultimately, is, is how you're walking is turning on and off key muscles, tightening others, and so forth. So, but yes, okay. you're absolutely right. That's what all of my 20 years comes down to is learning how to walk. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I didn't mean that to be dismissive or anything. No, just, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying, you're absolutely right. It, trying to put it together it, here. So for I've broken the body down into two systems. Yeah. So the the back and lower body is one system, and the pelvis and upper body is the second system. So gait is critical to lower body system problems, if, especially if they're chronic problems. Mm-hmm. It's likely tied to a gait issue, acute issues. Look, you can go to any physical therapist or chiropractor or massage therapist, and they'll be able to massage something or stretch something and make it go away. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. But if you have a chronic issue, you have to look in places that they haven't looked yet. And almost no one really, I feel, understands gait very well and how it really plays out throughout the whole system. Just think, just think, I'm, I'm just thinking all this over here because that's... That's huge. It's a lot. It's a lot to really digest here. So, how do you think that people have come to walk in improperly? Sure. I mean, because it, it seems like, um, and it probably isn't, but it does seem like like the way you're walking now is more or less how you started to learn how to walk, and it just got better from there. No, it no. just got worse from there. Yeah, you watch any kid, and you'll see exactly what you're doing wrong. Any child. Okay. And so, the easy way to do this would be to. Uh, walk down a hard concrete sidewalk with your shoes on and mm-hmm. then walk barefoot down the same sidewalk. And you'll see that your gait pattern changes when your shoes are on versus when your shoes are off. Right, right. You cannot yeah. heel strike as hard no. with bare feet on a hard surface no. as you can when you're wearing your nice comfy tennis shoes. <laughs> right? Right, so, right. So th- what the shoes are doing because of that thick sole they are allowing you to reach out further with your leg and strike harder, which then locks the knee and turns off key gluteal muscles and so forth. Mm-hmm. So that's the difference. If you just started walking barefoot like most toddlers, you'll, you'll quickly start developing your norm, your correct walking pattern. Right. But some people need a little bit of extra help. And that's why I developed that tiptoe walking technique because that forces them to walk correctly. There's no chance that you can screw that one up. If you walk in your tippy toes, that glute is going to start turning on. Yeah. 
to those of you who, have listening, who are listening here, I think um, Rick has just given us a great example of why you should be wearing barefoot shoes um, or minimalist shoes. Because I do that myself, and I have found it helps a lot. And I've noticed that it is picking up in popularity. Yeah, among, so we, among we can talk about that. But you okay. can walk correctly even without minimalist shoes. But minimalist okay. shoes will help you get there too, right? Right. So minimalist shoes are great for this purpose. You're absolutely right. But if you are exercising, suddenly going from a thick sole to a minimalist shoe, mm. then you're like me, you're likely in for a world of pain. Okay. <laughs> so I made that mistake because I wanted to start trying to train for, you know, ultra marathons. Uh-huh. And I knew I had to train. I had to move to a more minimalist running pattern because that would recruit more muscles in my legs that needed to be recruited. And I did that stupidly too fast. And uh-huh. it caused calf strain and Achilles tendon strain and so forth that eight months later, I'm finally getting over. Right. So. <laughs> So you have to be careful when you jump to a minimalist shoe, depending on if you're just walking, no problem. That's that's great. You can even do those vibrant five finger ones. Right. right. Yeah. But uh, but uh, if you're going to be training like running and things like that, please don't make my mistake. You know, <laughs> take it easy and gradually transition to a minimalist. Well, that's what uh, people like you and I are here for. So we can we can jump in too early, too fast, and we can make all these mistakes. And we can caution everyone else against doing the right. same, right? I'm um, looking forward to, to not making the mistakes and just being able to use my brain to, to figure that out <laughs> instead of my body. <laughs> Still not there yet. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'm For myself, I feel like I'm more, uh, I'm more keen to experiential learning than anything else, but um, yeah, what you're saying is uh, right. So if you go from wearing normal shoes to barefoot shoes or training in barefoot shoes, and I will say like for myself here, because I I have these barefoot shoes, I have a couple pairs now, and I have gone running in. And you can do it, even on concrete, you can do it. And one thing I will say about it uh, is you are very conscious of every step you are making. Yeah. You are su- you are super conscious of how you're running every every place your foot lands you are you are on top of it I mean you almost can't zone out on your music or anything like that because you are you're very aware of the fact that you don't have this padding underneath your soul like you normally do and you're much more cautious so that much yeah. I can I can attest to yeah and one more thing about my personal running style is Sean, I'm a very much a strong heel striker runner. Mm-hmm. Most really not better runners are more forefoot or midfoot strikers. Right. Right. So the transition for me to go to a minimalist shoe is significantly greater than if you're already a forefoot or midfoot striker. It's not going to be as big of a deal. Right. Mm-hmm. But if you're a heel striker, be careful. <laughs> right. Well, I don't. I, I, I mean, I already kind of was somewhat of a mid to four foot runner anyway, because I did yeah. track and track and field in high school. And so the right. spikes, these spikes, you know, obviously the spikes are all at the front of the foot, right? Because when you're going really fast, you're not leaning back on your heels. So I guess in that way, I was unconsciously all, yeah, there you go. I was, un, <laughs> I, was un, I was, I was unconsciously um, already kind of trained in that way. So I guess it wasn't as bad as it otherwise could have been. Had yeah. it not, but. Uh, but I, I've never been trained in how to run, you know, no. I just ran, you know, yeah. that's how it was. I ended up being a heel striker and, you know, well, I mean, man. you know, there, 
when you're when you're running sprint relays here, obviously you just want to go as fast as you possibly can. You don't want to take any time to lean back on your heels, and so right. I just kind of got that into my head because yeah. I like to just go as fast as I possibly can. Right, <laughs> I right. I, I don't like long drawn out runs, so I'm not I'm not ideal for ultra marathons. Yeah, but. Uh, Okay, let's talk about your books here because you've got a series of books, right? It's did I have I have this information great. It's called the Fix You series. Fixing you, and, Fixing and I wrote those. So I wrote those books about ten or fifteen years ago, and uh, it's a series of six books. And okay. after remember when I talked to you about Dr. Shirley Sarman uh -huh. when I took her courses. So I, I had become friends with a, a friend, uh, another PT in one of the courses, and we both finished all of her courses at the same time over the course of a year or a year and a half or something like that. And so I said to him, hey, you know, how's this working for you? And he says, eh. I says, what, what are you talking about? This is really solving a lot of chronic pain issues. And he's just mm -hmm. like, yeah, but I'm a manual therapist. So maybe I'll use it for some home exercise program or something like that. Yeah. And that's when I, and a manual therapist, folks, are people who believe that we should solve pain by massaging or manipulating joints or things like that. That's who this physical therapist was. And mm -hmm. so that's when I realized that our belief systems as medical professionals are filtering out potential information that could really be helping our patients. This guy was a manual therapist. Therefore, he didn't believe that biomechanics and movement could really matter because he believed he should be able to do something to a tissue to solve pain. Right. That's what and Thomas so, Myers is, right? That's what Tom Myers is, oh, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah. 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 And so, uh, so anyway, that's when I realized, oh my God, so many people are not getting this information because of their belief systems, right? Okay. Because yeah. of their practitioner's belief systems. And so the healthcare practitioner is the kind of gatekeeper of a lot of people's access to medical information. And so I realized that's when I, I thought I, I've, I need to write a book for the general public to take this information around the gatekeepers to the people directly. And so that's what my fiction you series of books are. And so this last book I wrote, which is called Solving the Pain Puzzle, mm -hmm. and that was just published this year, are, are cases. So later on, I, I owned a physical therapy clinic and I trained all my therapists in my techniques and watched them, you know, learn and, you know, develop the same proficiency as I did. And so uh, then I decided, you know what, I, I need to write this book because talking to people about this, they don't understand really what I'm trying to talk about. They don't understand what systems thinking is and how it can help them because no practitioners are really practicing systems thinking <laughs> in, in yeah. terms of their treatment. And so that's what this recent book is that I published this year. It's, it's uh, solving the pain puzzle cases from 25 years as a physical therapist. So it explains this whole systems of thinking approach, how I developed it and my journey to discovering it. And uh, I believe it's it, in terms of chronic or nagging or difficult pain. I believe that this is what we've been missing. So I, I obviously, obviously I've heard a lot on this, on this podcast when I speak to people that, about how chronic pain pretty much, you know, at the heart of everything that goes on within healthcare and why people suffer as much as they do. Mm -hmm. And we've heard, I've heard a lot about how like the current healthcare system is very inadequate in terms of treating people who have, 
know, problems that just don't go away. Like, like you said, with acute injuries are one thing you get hurt and you know, you heal, you get better. Some people just don't heal though, or what they do, what one part heals, but it doesn't really heal because it's just been compensated by something else here, which is a lot of what we run into. Yeah. So we think, we think we're fine because this one pain has kind of gone away or has dissipated, but something else has crept up in its place. And so we've got this other pain that we can't really, um, right. We can't really figure out here. Um, and this, which is goes back to what I said earlier about so many people in the healthcare system who are effectively, uh, you know, uh, deserting the healthcare system here because they're realizing that this doesn't really address the real problem here. Um, can I can I go into some detail about how this works mm -hmm. to give your folks? You know, you're absolutely right in everything that you're saying. And so here's here's the interesting thing with acute injuries. We in medicine rely heavily on the body's innate ability to heal. Oh, you, you strained your muscle? Well, let's give it some rest. We'll do some gentle stretching. We may bandage it up so you don't use it as much, and we'll let, let that heal. And then we'll gradually introduce some strengthening and more stretching and things and return to activities. Right. So that kind of model is our component thinking model that works quite well for acute injuries, but it relies heavily on the body's innate ability to heal. Well, if the body, I mean, if you cut your skin and it can heal in a week, if you tear a muscle, it'll heal in a few weeks. If you break a bone, six to eight weeks and it heals. If we have this type of innate healing, why in the world would we ever have chronic pain? Mm -hmm. It means that something's not healing in the body. Well, what could possibly be stopping something from healing in the body? How we're using our body is what we've set up these barriers that are constantly stressing already irritated and broken down areas, they cannot heal because we haven't changed why they're hurting in the first place. So to, in response to what you just said, let's just talk about unilateral back pain, sciatic pain, or SI mm -hmm. joint pain. Usually there's a pattern in the body called what I, that I call a side bending pattern. And that means that one side of the pelvis is higher, and usually one side, the same side of the rib cage is lower. So you can imagine, this is what I call, you know, side bending. So you can imagine mm -hmm. there's increased compression on that side of the spine, right? So if we're having unilateral back pain or sciatic pain or SI joint pain, this is usually what you'll, the pattern that you'll find. You'll find if you, if you take off your shirt and take a picture of your back, you'll see a crease on this side of your back that's bigger than the crease on the other side, indicating this pattern. So why would this pattern exist? Well, in medicine, because we don't understand systems, we say, oh, well, you've got a leg length discrepancy. You've got one leg higher than the other, and that's why you have this pattern. Absolutely not. It's a compensation pattern. And mm. this goes to what you were just saying. Why, does, why do we have an injury here, and it seems to heal, and then we have another injury somewhere else, and then it never seems to heal? Well, it's only because the first injury never really healed. Your brain just compensated for that injury to get off of it. So this pattern, this side bending pattern, in 80 to 90% of the cases is due to an older injury on this side that hasn't been corrected correctly. Mm -hmm. And so what your brain does is say, oh, we've got a problem here, but you're making me run this really fast sprint. So I'm going to help you because I'm, I'm wired for success. That's what we're supposed to be doing is succeeding, right? So I'm just going to do this little, this little change, and then we can run our sprint. 
And then that happens over years. And pretty right. soon, whatever was here now becomes a sciatic issue, SI joint pain. And then people are trying to fix this, but this isn't the problem. It's the older injury that's the problem that's feeding the whole pattern in the first place. In 10 to 20% of the cases, it's from a compensation from an other issue in the other leg. So mm -hmm. you're getting off of this one and then overloading this one. And after 10, 15, 20 years, your, your, your brain is saying, hey, man, I just can't do this anymore. I'm just going to get off of this thing. And now you've got your sciatic pain, SI joint, or unilateral back pain. So that's what's happening. You know, these old things aren't going away. Your, your brain is just scooting around them so you can still get from A to B. One thing in the... Uh the fitness and health industry that I've noticed and I've taken particular interest in is things like, and you alluded to this earlier because he talks about it a lot with Tom Myers, fascia and mm -hmm. fascial, fascial uh, pain and things like proprioception, uh, which I want you to, I want you to talk to the people here about proprioception. I know what it is, but I think you could probably give a much more in-depth explanation than I can. Uh, fascial pain, fascia, fascia is really gotten very uh, interesting. It's a very interesting concept because especially since we know it, it was discarded or not overlooked for so long in traditional uh, medicine, physical therapy. But now we find out things like, no, this is actually a real thing. There's actually like a, a whole system-wide webbing that covers everything. Everybody knows about bone pains and muscle pains and nerve pains and things like that. But a lot of us now we're finding out like more and more, this could be more uh, fascial related than muscle related. What do you think about that? Well, you can't have fascia related to the exclusion of muscle related and vice versa. Mm -hmm. It's all interconnected, right? right? So to explain what fascia is, fascia is connective tissue that even uh, in, invests itself even into the cellular makeup of a, of a muscle cell. Mm -hmm. So it's not just an exterior tissue. There are fingers of fascia in every muscle cell and fascia connects muscle to muscle, muscle to bone. Ner it holds nerves in place, blood vessels in place. It holds your guts in place. I mean, fascia is everywhere in your body. It's the glue that holds everything together. And there are different types of fascia. Mm -hmm. So th we, you mentioned Thomas Myers. So Thomas Myers is a famous uh, fascial researcher who wrote Anatomy Trains. He right. identified super highways of fascia that run from the head down to the bottom of the foot that can be dissected all as one contiguous piece of tissue. Well, if it can be dissected as one contiguous piece of tissue, then every point of that tissue affects every other point. It's like one big muscle almost, you know, mm -hmm. that's all connected by fascial zones. So there are certain, these super highways run in certain patterns. There's one along the back, there's one along the side, there's a couple along the front. There's a rotational type of fascial pattern and so forth. So these, so uh, when we talk about fascia, we're, I mean, we can't exclude muscle because, and we can't exclude nerves. I mean, fascia is binding everything. And so when we talk about uh, massaging fascia is nice, but again, that's just a local application of a treatment. You have to keep asking yourself why something is happening. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if your IT band is tight, why is it tight? All right, yes, rubbing it will make it feel better, but why does it keep getting tight? 
must it have something to do with how you're using your body? Well, of course it does. So ultimately, to relax fascia, you have to change how you're using your body, ultimately. So you can stretch and, and strengthen and so forth in the meantime, and that will help dissipate that and temporarily help it. And even, you know, Hanosomatics teaches a neurological method of relaxing fascial contraction, right? But even if you use that, if you don't change how you're, why you're developing all those neurological pain patterns or fascial pain patterns, then which has everything to do with how you're using your, your body, including your mind in terms of anxiety, stress, depression, and so forth, that will also activate fashion. I can go into my theory on why I believe that's happening. But anyway, uh, that's the connection between fascia, muscle, and movement. And you brought up proprioception. I think proprioception is maybe our sixth sense, mm -hmm. right? We have five senses, but our sixth is our ability to sense our own body and joint space. And that's what uh, proprioception is, is understanding where we are in space and time. And that, I think, think of as a sixth sense that no one yeah. ever thinks of as a sense, but it is. Does that answer your question or does that yeah, go it, into a fascia? No, 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 it does. It does. Um, so well, I want to know why you think, why you think all of this is disconnected. What's your theory on that? Cause you mentioned oh. that just a second ago, why you think like mind body and you know, everything else is uh, chronically disconnected. Well, it's not disconnected. It's connected. That's okay. why we have pain. Our disconnection is our understand is our medical professionals understanding of how to affect both. Okay. Okay. So that's the disconnect. So uh, the way it works is fascia. There are different types of fascia, and there's like little spiderwebby kinds of fascia that's really loose and and floaty and gossamer like. And then there's also thick slabs of fascia. That's the IT band is one of those. The plantar fascia is another. Thoracolumbar fascia is another. So a lot of so there's this one type of fascia called myofibroblast. Myo means muscle. And so this type of fascia is laid down in areas of mechanical tension in your body. So the thoracolumbar fascia is chock full of myofibroblasts because it's a change in the curvature of the spine going from an inward curve to an outward curve of the pelvis. And also you've got the pelvic bones that are activating, that are delivering stress to the lumbar spine. So the body lays down more myofibroblasts to help control this area. All right. So here's the interesting thing about myofibroblasts. They do not respond to neurological input. They respond to chemical input. What chemical? It's a cytokine called transforming growth factor beta 1. Well, where does that thing come from? When we are activated, when our sympathetic nervous system gets activated, it causes the release of this transforming growth factor beta 1 from our immune response. So it's floating around in our blood bloodstream and it finds the myofibroblasts and causes those to contract. So this is the connection, I believe, between emotional stress, anxiety, and so forth, and chronic pain. The more that we are dealing with emotional stresses, psychological, psychological traumas, anxiety, stress, and so forth, the more they tend to lock our body in these patterns that Thomas Myers, Thomas Hanna, Dr. Shirley Saruman all discovered, and they're locked in by myofibroblast activation. So there's something to be said when um, 
you know, when people say, you know, you have like a tension headache, you know, when, you know, you've under extreme amounts of stress and you can say all your, your stress gets uh, locked into your shoulders and that admits up to your, up to your, up to your brain and causes headaches. I tend to disagree. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I don't mean to, to embarrass you or anything, Sean, but this, no. what you're talking about is our component thinking standpoint of understanding okay. headaches. Okay. So let me explain to you what a systems approach is. Mm -hmm. So almost all, he so I mentioned before that the upper body system starts at the pelvis, mm -hmm. right? And it includes the rib cage and the shoulder blade. If you look, if folks, if you're at home and Google the shoulder scapular muscles, the scapula is the shoulder blade. And if you Google shoulder blade muscles or scapular muscles, you'll see that there are a ton of muscles attaching from the scapula into the neck bones the base of the skull, the, the shoulder blade, and, and our, thoracic, our thoracic spine. So the shoulder blade, just as the pelvis, you see how it's a broad flat bone. We all mm -hmm. know that the pelvis is the center of function for our lower body system and back. The scapula, another, the only other flat bone in the body, is the center of function for our upper body system and neck. And so this function here is transmitted via these muscular attachments into our cervical spine and base of our skull. Okay, so what is the most common dysfunction that we have here? That of scapular depression. All right, the scapula is sitting too low, which therefore we have one little muscle called the levator scapula, which starts at the corner of the shoulder blade and inserts into C1 through 4. And so if this is sitting too low, it's because usually because muscles are activating it too low. Well, in my neck pain and shoulder pain books, I show you that the scapular depressors in our body are huge. The latissimus dorsi, the pectoralis mm -hmm. major, right? The lower trapezius. These are enormous things, not to mention gravity. I mean, think about right. how heavy your arm is, Sean, right? Like 20 pounds, right? So you got gravity pulling this thing down and all these massive muscles too. We've only got one little teeny tiny pinky muscle that's trying to hold the system up, the levator scapula. We have the upper trapezius too, but that usually gets dysfunctional. So we have the levator scapula trying to hold this up, and this is where most people feel their pain. Ah, gosh, my neck just hurts right here, right where that corner is on my shoulder blade. It goes right up into there, and that's why that's what's hurting. And when the levator scapula is trying to contract to hold this whole system up, it makes you feel like your shoulders are doing this. But because that's the only guy who's trying to offset this whole mm -hmm. scapular depressing pattern. And so we feel like our shoulders are here. So what do we do? Oh, I'm going to stretch out my shoulders down. Well, that's then causing more problems. This is why we have chronic neck pain and headaches, right? Right. Okay. And so what happens is, is this gets stressed, and then, the and then this also stresses the suboccipital muscles. The nerves entering here into the skull travel through here. And so this then causes tension headaches, migraine headaches, trigeminal neuralgia, all sorts of types of headaches. But it's the scapula that's the source. So those of you listening, I don't know if you have headaches, Sean. How many of your practitioners have ever treated your shoulder blade for your headaches? I would, I would almost guarantee that zero would be the answer. And it's because no one understands how this whole thing works from a system standpoint. So if we go back to our unilateral back pain, sciatic pain issue, 
Remember, part of that is that the shoulder, the rib cage is sitting lower than the other mm -hmm. side. Uh -huh. Well, the shoulder blade rests on the rib cage. So if okay. you have this pattern of issues, then you're automatically depressing the scapula and then stressing that system. This is why a lot of people have, gosh, my right foot hurts, my right knee hurts, my right hip hurts. I even have right neck pain. What's going on? Why is this all on my right? This is mm -hmm. the reason. Is because of this is the connection between the head and the foot for this pattern. Does that make sense? It do, it does make sense. Yeah. No, I was a little slow to catch on, but that happens. <laughs> me too. It took me twenty five years, Sean. We're trying to do this in a half hour. <laughs> well, we're going on nearly an hour at this point, but uh, so all right. You mentioned you mentioned earlier that uh, your clinic, the Body and Balance Clinic doesn't exist anymore you sold it is that correct 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 body imbalance clinic yeah okay um so where do you work out of now i know you said you're in denver so what's yeah. the main sort what's your main so uh, workplace what, now what i'm doing is i'm transferring because more and more since i wrote these fixing you books and since i wrote this solving the pain puzzle books i'm getting more and more people from all over the place looking for help and so I just mm -hmm. decided, you know what, I'm just going to transition to a digital uh, platform instead of a brick and mortar platform. And so what I did is I created downloadable home programs that are not down downloadable, but digital home programs that people can purchase really cheaply that have all of the things that solve almost all of these pattern problems. It includes the somatics lessons that, I, that I've created for this program the stretches, the strengthening, taping techniques. For instance, the scapula issue, I devised a unique taping technique to correct that until you fix the system that's breaking it. This gives most people with neck pain and headaches almost immediate relief from day one so that they can fix the other things and finally be out of their headaches. They'll know immediately that this is the source of their problem because it fixes it, it, fixes it immediately. So anyway, these are digital home programs that I've created, which then now I've gone full time to supporting those digital home programs and getting out of the clinic. And I see people via telehealth and so forth. So I, I'm, I'm done with insurance. I'm fed up with insurance <laughs> and I'm fed up with all of the, you know, overhead of the clinic and having employees and worrying about them and their patients and so forth. And, and all the paperwork headaches, I'm done with it all. That's why I've gone digital. So you're really a one-man band these days. I am. I have a team of people that help with other areas of marketing and like reaching out to people like you to be on mm -hmm. podcasts and so forth. But it's just me. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I mean, it sounds extremely liberating. I mean, definitely online, you're going to reach a higher, a much yeah. larger pool of people that way. Um, do you, um, I mean, I know you said you just do telehealth here. You, I know you said you also do telehealth. Mm -hmm. uh, do you ever miss like the hands-on actual stuff? I, I actually do. Uh, I, in order to, because I, I sold my clinic a year and a half ago, I had to sign a non-compete clause. Mm -hmm. So that is a three-year clause, which forces me not to work with patients with, you know, directly like that. And I do miss that. But you know what it also has taught me, Sean, is that uh, I, I don't need my hands to solve pain oh, yeah. and how we work as a system. So most people believe they need someone to do something to them 
to solve their pain because all practitioners have been trained in this component thinking idea. But once you understand how the body works as a system, you should be able to fix yourself. We're not born needing a physical therapist or a chiropractor or a massage therapist for the rest of our lives to fix things. You are the cause of your pain and you are the solution to your pain. And my programs will show you how. I think it's very helpful advice, especially to me. Um, the fact that you've learned that you don't have to actually touch anyone, physically touch anyone to actually heal them. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I myself. see it all the time. I've seen it for 10 to 15 years with people who have been reading my Fixing You series of books. And so what I did is I took that information from those books and combined it with, uh, with what I learned clinically in my clinic for the last 10 years and mm -hmm. put those two things together into these digital home programs. So that is the most up-to-date version of me that has really, I've put everything in there that you should need to solve your pain. So where do you go to from here? Well, uh, so it's a good question. So I, I want to introduce these ideas into industry mm -hmm. and gather research to show that this works. And look, you, you can do it for a fraction of the cost and solve all of your back pain in your, for instance, UPS drivers, right? Mm -hmm. right? You can solve their back pain for a fraction of the cost. And then I can say, look at that data. And then I can take it to, you know, medical people. But medical people don't want to talk to me until I've got research data. Well, I'm a clinician, not a researcher. So this is my only way to really generate research is to use my own programs to generate the data. Like live testimonials aren't enough. Like people well, saying, like, hey, this helped me. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, live testimonials are wonderful, but in terms of medicine, we need data because mm -hmm. that's just called anecdotal evidence. Right. And that doesn't work, right, for medicine. Right. So right. we need data. So I love testimonials. You know, I'll take those all day long, but in terms of changing how we understand chronic pain, I'll need research to do that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, Rick, uh, it's been a joy talking to you. I appreciate all your knowledge here and I appreciate all your demonstrations. I, I, I think this is the first time I've actually done a physical demonstration on my podcast. So that was cool. Oh, great. Great. <laughs> Hopefully your listeners did too and they found some truth in it. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that was interesting. Yeah. It's actually, you just reinforced what I kind of suspected anyway there when, but you just kind of put it into words here. Like you, you really do kind of, you do walk on your toes, walk and run on your toes much differently you do than you do in a normal gait. So it was really cool that you kind of put a spotlight on that for me. Yeah. Well, I, I think mo most of the reaction I get when I talk to people about this type of approach, is like, well, that makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it makes intuitive sense and it works clinically, right? Right. The problem, you know, so it's not a hard jump for people to, you know, ingest this information or try it because there's nothing I'm talking about that just doesn't, isn't computing. It's all logical, mm -hmm. but our medical approach doesn't include this type of thinking. That's, that's what's not logical. Why right. wouldn't you look at the shoulder blade with all of these muscular attachments to the neck? Why isn't anyone looking at my shoulder function as it relates to my neck pain? That right. doesn't make any sense. All you have to do is look at the anatomy and you see the connections. 
but no one's doing that. Why wouldn't gait affect everything from my low back down to my foot? But well, how, again, many pe- how many yeah, people okay. are really treating gait issues successfully? Right. Right. Well, again, you, you you spoke about this from the very start of this podcast. It's the uh, compartmentalizing kind yes. of thinking. You know, it's and it's not just the clinicians. It's also it's everyday people. It's like we just associate wherever the pain is is the entire source of the problem. Because so that's it, how you've been trained to think, and that's right. how I was trained to think as a clinician too. And so, like I said, that that clinical thinking is great for more acute issues. Mm-hmm. But the very, I mean, look how brilliant we are in medicine. Look at all of, all of our scans, all the really intelligent people in medicine. Why, with all of this intelligence, would we have chronic pain then? It's because we're not looking in the right place. Right. All that intelligence is focused on this when it should be over here, right? right? right. It's just asking the wrong questions. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Well, Rick, uh, we have a closing tradition on this podcast where I have the guests leave the listeners with one thing to remember from the podcast if they remember nothing else and what would you what it would be from you well uh, we haven't said this but my message to listeners especially if you have chronic pain is you know you people with chronic pain tend to think that they're broken because they failed so many other types of treatments well you're not broken you've been approached from from a specific point of view that is not working because it's not inclusive enough so you just haven't had the right information. And I believe I have that information. So that would there be you my go. message. There you go. It's a message of empowerment, folks. Rick, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you. I had a great time, Sean. Thank you. Good, good. And all of you listening, of course, you know what to expect from me. I'll put all the contact information for Rick uh, in my show notes and uh, websites. Um, the books, of course, I'll put some of the books on there, especially the most recent one. It's the um, Solving the Pain Puzzle one. Yep. Holding out for you there, right there. Um, I'll put a link on that. Sounds like an interesting read. I'm also going to look into Thomas Hanna. Um, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm really intrigued by that. Yeah. Uh, Changed so, my life. Changed my um, life. I bet. I'm really intrigued. Um, but, yeah. So, everyone listening, thanks again for listening. This is the Fitness Reborn Podcast. I'm Sean. And until next time, move forever. Peace out. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget, you can become a supporter of the show by becoming a monthly subscriber. No commitments. Cancel anytime. Every little bit helps. And I'd sure love your support. Also, you can click any of the links to our social media platforms provided in the show notes. And you can email me at renfitnesswarriors at gmail.com. That's Ren, R-E-N, fitnesswarriors at gmail.com. If you got a fitness story to tell, I'd love to hear it. And you never know, you might just find yourself on the show. Until next time, train hard. Peace.